0: Welcome to The Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli, along with my friend, Barry Schuster, the founding editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine.
1: How you doing, Barry? I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks very much for asking. I'm looking forward to talking to our special guests today and finding out how they got in the restaurant business, why they got in the restaurant business, and hearing some pearls of wisdom from them that would be useful to our our listeners today. Absolutely, and we're going to have
0: some fun because we've got a really
1: good show lined up. So uh, grab a drink, make yourself comfortable, and welcome to The Corner Booth. Hey Barry,
0: we are in for a treat today. We get to talk to John Buchanan uh, with Let Us Entertain You Enterprises in Chicago, Illinois, the Windy City, um, home of some of the best restaurant creations as done by them. John and his team are kinda, um, they're sort of one in the same with trend-setting concepts. People know that name as the, the better developed, the better managed restaurant concepts. And so John's going to give us some of his insights on how uh, he got into the industry today. He's going to talk about how uh, his impact on lettuce concepts and, and their concepts impact in the industry. Uh, and then of course, how we got into the lettuce consulting. So John, I hope we can touch on all of that. Welcome to the corner booth. Thanks guys. Uh,
1: good morning. Good morning, John. It's a pleasure to meet you. Um, and, um, I'm also very excited about this. So let us entertain you. Such an iconic brand, if you will, in the industry. And uh, I'm sure listeners can be very excited about hearing what you have to say as well. Um, John, you want to walk us through your journey into the restaurant business. Uh, What got you started um, down this road? Well, you know, I washed dishes all through
2: college, you know, just to make money for tuition and so forth. And when I decided to leave graduate school, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I went to the library to do some research. The internet hadn't been invented yet, by the way. Um, So uh, I went through publications to find out what the fastest growing industry in the nation was. And it was the hospitality and food industry. Um, So I researched various jobs uh, in the industry. And I found that every restaurant company out there was hiring managers, every one of them. Um, So that's what I set my sights on. And I wound up um, focusing on lettuce uh, almost accidentally because I wanted to apply with companies that ran restaurants that I respected and liked. And so I made a list of those restaurants and what I found Surprisingly, was that the top three restaurants on my list were all Lettuce Entertain You restaurants. So that sort of made it a done deal for me. I had to apply with Lettuce.
0: Barry, this is a good time for us to send some special thanks to all those who support the independent restaurant operating community. Like today's sponsor, Lone Star Liquor Licensing Company. Our friends Gerald and Keith are the premier authorities on the subject of liquor license process for sale of liquor, beer and wine in all restaurants and bars. So hey listeners, whether your needs are retail, catering, wholesale or manufacturing licensing, whether you're opening or maybe you're considering renewing your permit or just have compliance questions, contact the folks at Lone Star Liquor Licensing at LoneStarLiquorLicense.com.
1: So you made a almost your entire career in the industry with um, with lettuce, it sounds like, if I'm, he- I'm hearing you correctly.
2: Well, I'm older than I sound. Uh, I worked for two companies before lettuce. Uh, one of them was, my, my first uh, official restaurant job was uh, with Ponderosa Steakhouses. But I was with them one year to the day. And then I went to work for the company that was opening the restaurants in the newly constructed Sears Tower here in Chicago. I was with them five and a half years, um, and that's when I sought out uh, lettuce.
0: And you're celebrating how many years there now?
2: Uh, Forty-two years for me, <laughs> uh, and the company is going to celebrate its fiftieth uh, year soon. Wow!
1: Congratulations.
2: We had we had six restaurants when I started.
0: And what was your role uh, when you first got started? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the early manager. days?
2: Um, I was promoted to a general manager's position pretty rapidly because the two people above me left the company. Um, You know, Lettuce didn't have the the large bench of talent back then that it has now, Um, so I was sort of thrust into the position, but my experience and background, um, you know, made it very possible.
1: The general manager and by
2: the way when i when i came to lettuce i places that i was interviewing with i was very sure i didn't want to work for anyone again who didn't know what it was like to run a restaurant and of course when i interviewed with rich melman that concern went away because richard had opened had been in the business for many years and had opened our rj Runs and the other concepts we had at the time
1: the general manager position um, is so critical to setting the tone for for a concept for a unit. Um, during that process of learning to be a general manager, it, and it sounded like uh, you you came to that position very quickly. So, um, my imagination is that you're um, there's a lot of learning on the job that you had to do very quickly to get up to speed. Um, what What did you take from that experience um, early on that uh, set the tone for your career, not only as an operator, but as a consultant? Well, there
2: were two major things. Um, Back then, Lettuce didn't have the kinds of um, system, operational systems that we have today that we developed across the years for ourselves. And there was no management training program in place nothing whatsoever Uh, so I had to uh, structure something for myself and very rapidly I developed a reputation for being able to train and develop the other managers underneath me and that's what led to a uh, a discussion with Rich Melman Um, he wanted me to step out of operations and start our human resource department Uh, we had nothing at the time I really didn't want to move out of operations, but uh, I'm a team player and Richard can be very persuasive, so uh, I agreed to do that.
1: But I've got to imagine with so much emphasis right now on culture and people, it seems every successful operator from one to two to three unit owners to those who have created 300 and 400 unit concepts, they all get back to... How culture and the people and onboarding and training really makes a difference between the winners and losers. It would, I imagine, I would imagine also that that HR experience um, really set you up to um, to be successful. Well,
2: I'm glad you mentioned culture. Um, you know, as long as I've been with the company, I've always been pleased with the fact that fundamentally company has not changed its culture across those entire 42 years that I've been with, with Lettuce. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, laws change, regulations changed, um, you know, there, there are new pressures on the industry and so forth, but the fundamentals of how you operate a business and how you treat one another and your people hasn't changed at all at Lettuce, and I'm very grateful for that.
0: Yes, I think that that's a wonderful uh, statement, that the importance the, that formed the foundation back then uh, is successful in the operations today.
2: And one of the things we find, by the way, with clients is that they, they talk about wanting to have uh, a particular type of culture or talk about wanting to emulate lettuce's culture but they're not willing to act in such a way as to bring that about. Ah, you know, and It's just not gonna be possible.
1: How do you influence culture, John? I mean, you know, it, I think we get a sense of when culture really works and we see a very strong leader and he, he or she brings that personality and that influence into the house. But if you have a concept that is struggling with culture, you know, where do you start as a consultant? How do you, how do you shape and mold that? What what are the, some of the steps you you do?
2: Well, that is the single hardest job that we take on in in our consulting roles. Doing culinary work, menu work, uh, operational systems, training manuals, whatever. Those are all fairly straightforward. But molding or changing culture. Um, Really has to involve the leaders of the company or the concept. Um, we have a saying that we use to let us, the fish stinks from the head. And, you know, I, I never proceed with a consulting uh, engagement unless I'm able to talk to those top people and, and gauge how involved they're going to be and how committed they are. Because if they're not committed, uh, whatever we do for the client isn't going to be very successful it's not going to last very long unless the leadership is
1: behind it can you share an example um perhaps without not naming names where um a concept really needed that culture shift and you came in and you were able to make that happen well yes
2: um this is going back several years but we had a client that was uh essentially in pretty good shape except they were hobbled they were handicapped because the founder of the company was still involved and to put it in plain terms he was a jerk he he was dictatorial he wouldn't listen to his people he was short-tempered and Uh, you know when we interviewed um rank and file people in the trenches eventually they all admitted that Mm -hmm. but nobody was willing to say it to him for fear for their jobs
0: understood yeah you know which is understandable but you know the worst
2: he could do is to to me is to say our consulting arrangement is ended. get out of my office So in a case like that, I had to face that guy with some some very cold, hard facts about how his people felt about him. And I had to tell him that if he was not willing to work on those personal issues, uh, I wouldn't continue to work with him and he wasn't gonna be successful.
0: Right, how did he respond to that?
2: that? Essentially what we wound up doing was finding him um,
0: a life coach. I could understand and it that. Turned, it turned out very positively in the long run. That's what I was going to ask. Was he receptive? And obviously, well, and I guess it sounds like the life coach programming for him helped broaden his approach and um, and and made a, a work environment much more successful. Yes, and, and you
2: know there have been only one or two instances where that hasn't worked, where essentially the founder or owner basically said. You don't know what you're talking about. Okay, see ya. Bye mm-hmm. bye. Right. Have a nice day. Go back to doing whatever you were doing before. How'd that work out for you? Right. Because I didn't call you. You called me. Exactly.
1: And on that note, let me throw out a term, if you and you could take it from there, because I want to hear your experience. Um, happy team, happy guests. Absolutely. Um, when you have
2: unhappy employees, you know they're. They're the kind of people that go home and kick their dog, and, you know, it it manifests itself in any number of ways with the guest. Sometimes it's even, uh, it could be unconscious on the part of the um, uh, employee, and it may be subconscious on the part of the guest. They just, when they walk out, they just don't feel like they've had a great experience. They don't feel like they've been welcomed. Um, You know, the place didn't feel hospitable to them and they may not even be able to put their finger on it. But there's a warmth there that's missing. Hmm. Um,
0: something you have to
2: be able to select the right kind of people that have a service mentality that are willing to serve. Yep. you have to train them and develop them but
0: uh, it really starts with the hiring I would uh, I'd like to start there um, and if you wouldn't mind walk us through um, uh, how that worked for you for the years because I know before you developed lettuce Consulting um, and your HR experience at lettuce you were a part of operations management development and some and many of the concept developed uh, new concepts that were developed. So, could you tell the listeners a little bit about how Lettuce structures their development of idea and their priorities for an opening? Um, and, uh, you know, how, how things seem to work because that company is sort of regarded as doing it in the best manner.
2: Sure. Well, you know, whenever a potential client calls me, I always ask, um, you know, how was it you came to contact Lettuce? And I always get one of two answers. I eat in your restaurants all the time, and I love them. Or my boss eats in your restaurants, and he told me to call you. (laughs) So I was well aware from the beginning that it's it's our concepts, our restaurants, that would be my best calling card to draw consulting clients. Um, And they frequently ask the same type of question. I also get this type of question from people who say they have a restaurant idea and they want me to evaluate the idea or their business plan, um, and they don't. They don't typically follow the same path that lettuce follows. For us, I- any concept that we do, it always starts with the food. Okay. That's the very first thing. If we don't have exciting very flavorful food, compelling food, craveable food. You don't need to go any further.
0: That is um, pretty much the foundation.
2: Yes, um, that's what people are coming for. You know, they might come in to see, you know, uh, some kind of design, you know, done by a top-notch uh, architect. You know, they'll come once and say, "Wow, isn't this cool?" But if the food doesn't grab them, they're not coming back. You know, I've I've seen it. Uh, So it's a food that keeps people coming back to a concept repeatedly and frequently. Um, So that that's always where it starts for us. We develop um, portions of the menu, sections of the menu. Uh, We may not write the entire menu very early on, but we have a sense of what the concept is likely to be, and. We can crystallize that into just five or six words, what this concept is going to be. And that concept statement is what we use to educate all of the other people on the team. The chefs that are going to be involved, the management team, the architects, the the designers, uh, painters, artists, uh, you know, whatever, you know, they're all on the same page regarding this concept uh, statement. Not a mission statement, but a concept statement of what this thing is
0: going to be. So that's a short concept description that captures the soul of what this thing is going to be. If I understand it, you correctly, and then and it's hard to do. I, it's hard to crystallize that into
2: five or six words.
0: Right, and, and that's a good point to make because yeah, that's a very important thing to do, uh, but it is not an easy thing. Um, But it sounds like without that, though, you're not going to have a centralized direction that design, operations, food and beverage is all gonna work together to do.
2: Right, and the other thing to remember is the less concise that statement is, um, the more vague the whole concept becomes. And you need to be able to give all of your creative people real solid direction. If you don't do that, what you wind up with is their vision, not your vision when you leave them to their own devices. Good point. And I find a lot of first-time restaurateurs doing that. Well, I got a good chef, he's gonna do the food. You know, I've hired a top designer. He's gonna design the place for me. But they don't have enough vision and insight themselves um, you know, to bring it about. So you wind up with sort of a disjointed uh, end result. And one of the things I think Lettuce does not get very much credit for with the public, but internally, I I know that this is a, a big strength. And that is, if you look at any one of our concepts and examine it, you'll find a sense of cohesion. Everything works together. You know whether it's the food the look of the menu itself the decor the type of chair that you're sitting in the uniform uh you know the the service style whatever it might be it's all a cohesive thing because all of the decisions are going through one individual the managing partner
0: it's interesting i've heard you say that before that that uh, in order for the guest to perceive a successful concept, it means you've put it together like pieces of a puzzle, and it all seems to fit uh, food, design, service management systems. So you're right, the guest may not understand all of that, the public may not understand all of that, but if all of that doesn't fit, then it doesn't sound like you um, have, have hit the, t- the bullseye that you want.
2: Well, th- think about, you know, look, looking at a puzzle, to use that example, you know, sitting on the dining room table. And if there are pieces that are, you know, sort of banged into place, you know, that don't really belong there, it doesn't look right to the eye. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but if you have the vision, you look at the cover of the box, you know, and say, oh, that's a piece of fence. That's supposed to go over here. Uh, that vision, that box top vision is what the managing partner uh, brings to the process.
0: Now you've mentioned managing partner a couple times so maybe you could explain for the listeners how you structure that position, what that title seems to be responsible for uh, and, and how do you find you know, that position or is that something that is developed?
2: Uh, managing partners come from within the organization. They, they work up through the organization, through the various levels of management. Um, after the general manager's position, uh, there may be a supervisory role where uh, the general manager moves into a position where he oversees more than one uh, unit or more than one concept. Ultimately, most of our management people are looking to become managing partners. Um, and that's a situation where they actually have ownership, uh, some, some piece of ownership in the restaurants that they're responsible for. Uh, they don't necessarily have to come up with the conceptual idea, um, right. but they do have to be able to essentially bake more pies. You want a piece of a pie, you gotta be able to bake another pie. So they, uh, to have that role, they might have to have enough expertise and have enough leadership capability uh, to drive the opening of a new restaurant, not necessarily create a new concept. Although they could.
1: Well, that what you're saying really hits me in a number of directions. One of them is, you know, you can you have a general manager that's great, uh, a, a well-paid manager to run the restaurant, and you have owners. Now, my uh, observation regarding successful independence, is the owners are very hands-on. Essentially, they're 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 part of the management process, but they're not just paid employees, they got skin in the game because they have money invested in this, they're owners. And what you're saying with your brand is that you've got somebody on the floor, somebody running the operation, who's not just an employee, but they have truly skin in the game. This thing goes well, they make a lot of money. It doesn't go well, Um, it goes nowhere for them. Yeah, you
2: take the good with the bad. If you, if you don't want to take that risk, continue being a manager. That's okay with us. You'll get your salary. Uh, you know, you can work towards your, your quarterly bonus or whatever. Um, you know, but if you want to grow with the organization and grow personally and developmentally, managing partner is the next step to take, but there is risk involved. That's what being an owner means.
1: So with concept development, um, you start with the menu, and then you build out from there. And...
2: Well, the the next thing we look at is, um, we look at the market. Mm -hmm. Um, And the big thing for us is we don't do a lot of Demographic studies, traffic counts, disposable income type stuff. But we just don't need to do a lot of that. Okay? Instead, what we look at is a very um, simple, anecdotal um, process. Is there competition there? hmm You know, uh, we usually don't want to be the pioneers in the neighborhood. Right. We have done it. To good success, but typically it's not what we do. I'm always worried when a landlord calls and says, Let us put a restaurant in my strip mall. There's nothing out here. You'll make a killing. And I'm immediately thinking, Why is there nothing <coughs> there? Mm-hmm. There's a reason for that.
0: That's a really good point. Um, I think that listeners need to make a note of is that typically the most successful restaurants seem to be those that are surrounded by other restaurants. And so Well,
2: think of it this way, you know, a landlord or an operator, you know, could say the area is underserved. So I should put a restaurant here. And that strategy works pretty well if you're a McDonald's or a subway or something of that type. Okay, but for an independently owned restaurant with an interesting concept, the way I look at it is, I want to be in an area where this, you know, two blocks that way, a guy's doing four million bucks. And, you know, another quarter of a mile that way, and there's a guy doing four million bucks. And then over here, there's a guy doing three million bucks. And I start thinking, "That's, that's $11 million already in this market all I have to do is figure out how to take some of those
0: customers. That's easy to do. Yeah or or uh, or you're sharing. You're sharing the customer profile. Obviously yeah. if there's 11 or 12 million dollars in an immediate market area, that that means there, there's an active customer base and it sounds yeah. like
2: so that you don't have to create it, you don't have to market it, you don't have to advertise for it. It's already there. Right. Mm-hmm. So
0: that's the takeaway. And, and the
2: ironic the, part is I think all you have to do is do what you initially set out and intended to do, serve great food to your guests. Right. The public always recognizes that.
1: So when you're coming into an area like that, um, where there's a conglomeration effect and uh, you already see there's 12, 15 million dollars of guest traffic happening, um, I imagine that you um, go into those restaurants and really scope out what they're doing right and what they're doing not so well um, in terms of determining uh, how you might um, take some of that traffic from them and put it in your seats.
2: We, we do a tremendous amount of research. It costs you uh, relatively little, sometimes nothing at all. Um, if you know what to look for, all well, you have to go in and have a meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and see what that experience is. You know, is the food great? Is mm-hmm. it consistent? What kind of service are you getting? What you know, what's the ambiance? Right. You know, is there value here? Right. And those those are the four big things that guests typically look at, um, consciously or unconsciously.
1: With uh, forty-two years in the uh, in the business, um, and all of us seeing this big uh, demographic shift generationally, um, with uh, millennials eclipsing baby boomers as a predominant um, dining consumer. Um, how has that affected what you all have been doing at Lettuce and, and in your consulting um, op- your consulting business? Uh, is there any you know key points there that you might want to share with us? Sure.
2: Well, Lettuce has a distinct advantage. Uh, with regards to the demographics. Um, you know, Rich Melman started the company, um, but he has three kids who have all come up through the ranks with lettuce. And now Richard's eldest son now is the president of the company. Um, and, you know, it's certainly not a nepotism type of thing. He, you know, he's earned that position. Mm-hmm. And um, he and his team have developed a number of really successful concepts, but what what he and his brother and sister have been able to do is to keep lettuce's culture, keep lettuce's um, you know particular um, flair, but shift it for a younger clientele because they're younger than their dad.
0: Right,
2: you know, and they, they they're closer to the key
0: customer base.
2: Um, the clientele that you've just described. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the consulting end of, of things, um, what I found is that look, if you look at any sports team, I don't care what the sport is. If you don't do fundamentals well, you typically don't win. you got to be able to run, hit, pitch, you know, whatever, field. If you don't do fundamental things well, you're in trouble. And that's what I find with uh, consulting clients. Okay, they can get enamored of a particular idea or design or or conceptual direction. But if they're not doing fundamental things well, they're going to struggle. Um you know, where the rubber meets the road, what the customer sees, Um, and then what the customer tastes and experiences. And those fundamental things haven't changed at all. I mean, you you know, you can add a couple things to the hopper, you know, like, you know, technology is certainly way more prevalent now. You know,
0: than it was when I started the consulting group 20 plus years ago. Sure, and and, yeah. I, and that does impact the fundamentals. We'd love to talk about the impact technologies made in lettuce operations and the type of technology that you like to work with your clients. But before we get into there, when you talk about fundamentals and you walked us through what a really good job uh, your concepts do with the fundamental start of food. But the very next key fundamental is the building of people. That's another thing that over the years you guys have uh, been known to do really, really well. Can you talk a little bit about um, you know, the practices of selection, initial training, ongoing sure. empowerment of staff, I, I that, et cetera?
2: I think WETA certainly does have a great reputation for that, what, whether it's hourly people or management people. Uh, I'll often have clients say, I want to have managers as good as your managers. I've, I've been in your restaurants. I've watched them work. Sometimes they'll say, um, I, you know, uh, how can I get my managers to treat the restaurant a- as if they're an owner? Well, give mm-hmm. them ownership.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. That's how you do that.
2: You can't expect them to function like an owner or think like an owner. Um, if it's just a name only. So, uh, developing those kinds of people, uh, you know, the kind of leadership and talent and management that we have, um, and this works for hourly as well, it's, it's a four step process. I think it starts with the hiring uh far too many restaurant managers by our restaurant companies don't interview all that well they what they have down pat is all of the legal issues with regards to hiring don't ask this don't ask that you're not supposed to go down this road um it makes sure we're compliant make sure this paperwork is filled out don't forget the i-9 all those types of things. And all that stuff is important. Sure. But more important than that is, how do you know that this person sitting across the table from you is going to contribute properly to your team?
0: Right. And
2: every restaurant out there is, is guilty by necessity of hiring warm bodies. I need somebody now. I'm shorthanded. We've all done it, we've all been there and been forced into that position, and it rarely works well. You know, the trick is being able to stay ahead of the game um, and making yourself the employer of choice in your particular market, so that the best candidates are coming to you and want to work for you.
0: This way you start selecting by design, you're not necessarily
1: just selecting out of need
0: out of need or desperation in some cases <laughs> or desperation.
1: Although I do talk right. to a lot, lot of operators now um, and I'm sure you're aware of this as well as, as much as anybody is that uh, in some markets, uh, there's a little bit of a labor crunch now in terms of even uh, filling positions. Uh, uh, what are you suggesting for those who are having to a, a, adapt to that uh, um, new environment?
2: well i I would say you know based on my experience and the calls i'm getting and and reports from our existing clients that that's the single biggest issue that's concerning uh restaurateurs these days Mm -hmm. i can't find enough good people right um either i can't find them or uh the people i find don't want to work and and, and lettuce, you know, is experiencing that crunch as well. You know, we find we have to interview a lot more people than we used to have to interview to find the candidates we wanted. Um, you know, but you put more manpower on the problem, and you interview further out rather than you know getting right down to the wire and doing that hiring out of desperation.
0: So for an opening, that's what you're recommending is they may need to be starting to hire earlier, so that they can uh, stick with their um, uh, with their design, knowing that the market we're, is we're that time. earlier. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. Look, a great candidate. If you said to a great ca- candidate. Look, this interview went terrific i think you could do very well here i'd love to hire you i don't have a suitable position right now are you willing to stay where you are um you know until something does open a terrific candidate is going to say yeah i'll do that for the chance to work here absolutely
0: interesting good
2: but the candidate that says i need a job man i know i got rent to pay you know, my mom's throwing me out of the house. You now they'll take anything. Uh, you know, you ask them to wait two weeks till the training class is gonna start and they never show up. they found a job somewhere else and don't have the courtesy to tell you.
0: Sure. Mm-hmm.
2: But... Okay, so, so not only do you not want operators hiring out of desperation, you don't want candidates that take jobs out of desperation either. Sure. So the second part of this process has to do with the training. Uh, And and we all know that training is one of those financial casualties. Yeah. Um, It's often one of the places that uh, restaurants and
0: owners will cut corners to save dollars. They're in a hurry to open. Let's go. What's that? Yeah, because we're in a hurry to open. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, you hear yeah. that? I or they'll say to me,
2: "You know, I need a management training program. Um, what do you recommend?" And I, I look at their their concept, and they'll say, "You probably need an eight-week training program." And they say, "Oh no, no, that that I can't pay a guy for eight weeks in a non-productive capacity while he's learning. You know, I want Lettuce's program, but can we do it in fewer weeks?" No. Right. You know, that's two pounds of bologna in a one-pound bag. Mm-hmm. It's
1: not going to work. And as um, no. as craveable as the food is, um, a, a tepid guest experience because the hospitality is not there and and the place is disorganized is the the, the food isn't going to overcome that. Um, can we say that?
2: Well, and, and also keep in mind that. Great employees don't want to work in a disorganized environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah.
2: They also don't want to work with slackers. They don't want to work in an environment where Susie shows up late a couple times a week and nothing happens to her. Right. You know that person starts to think. You know, I make an effort. I'm here every day on time. I do my side work. I punch in on time. I do this. I do that. You know, and look at these other people. Why am I knocking myself out, you know, to do the right thing when management doesn't seem to care about
0: that? So it sounds like you're just kind of moving into the third step. Uh, I'm I'm assuming after, you know, the proper selection and the initial training, if you're going to create that work environment that keeps people motivated, um, you're going to have to engage uh, the, the staff. And, uh, and properly manage the staff. Am I assuming that correctly?
2: Yeah, we, we looked at it in terms of ongoing development. Um, look, you can hire a new person, train them for a week, put them on the floor. Um, and, and by the way, if the mentality, if the operator's mentality is, well, this guy's been a server for years. i you know, give him a menu, he can take tables tomorrow, uh, you're in trouble um you know but if you let's say you do things properly um hire them put them through a training program for a week and so forth they're not going to remember everything that you taught them in that week there's just too much information
0: sure makes sense
2: you know that through repetitiveness and, and and experience and so forth eventually they'll get it all right or they'll be faced with a situation and you know, and scratch their head and say, eh, what did they say to do in the training program? But there's people they can ask and so forth. Um, but bringing the hourly people along and de- in a developmental sense um, is what keeps them engaged. And when it comes to management people, what I find is lots of companies have, a, have training materials for management, but they spend very, very little time developing those people beyond the, the actual training. And when I say developing them, working with them in a psychological sense to make them better leaders. The single biggest mistake that we see with clients and uh, their uh, their people efforts is they don't hold their people accountable. Okay. And the second uh, most frequent mistake uh, is that they don't have a strong bench. They go to open a second, third, fourth location, they move all the talented people over there and then the wheels come off. Right. You know, the units they've left. Uh, because they they haven't spent the time or the money needed to build a strong bench so that they have a solid foundation to be able to build on makes sense So it's hiring training development and then the, the fourth piece is opportunities um and that's where that um that progression through the ranks comes in and um you know, position like managing partner, for example, every company um, may not be able to do that, or may not want to do
0: that. Sure, I understand. Um, pardon? No, I said you're right. I understand.
2: Yeah, but but uh, given that, what opportunities can you offer your people, or do you just expect the guy to stay in the general manager's role forever?
0: It's a good point. I would think that every independent would be able to answer that somehow, that that managing partners might not work in their independent restaurant, but from an hourly standpoint, there's going to be some type of opportunity for cross-training, for development into uh, uh, hourly trainers, department heads, uh, some way of keeping people engaged and giving them more responsibility if they just care to look.
2: Yes. A lot of... Too often, I think there are owners who are overly concerned about the money involved. Well, if I if I give him more responsibility, he's going to expect more money, and rightfully
1: so. Sure. Damn. <laughs> A lot of our, uh, our readers um, and members and listeners here are independent operators, startup operators. That's uh, the market we serve, and. Uh, As you know, the National Restaurant Association estimates about 70 to 80% of units out there are independents. Uh, Of course, we like to think that this is becoming the age of independence. We got uh, young operators who uh, like to create their own concepts and and take control of their own destiny. We have younger diners who seem to be interested in uh, communal experiences a little more adventurous and maybe not as interested in the same concepts as uh, their parents uh were um when they uh the really big uh casual chains uh came into being um what can you what are you seeing about the independent market that is changing now if anything and uh, what do you think its potential strengths are Particularly in terms of competing with the chains, um, including uh, the fact that social media now is becoming a predominant form of marketing, which uh, somewhat levels the playing field. But um, I want to hear what you have to say, as somebody who really has your finger on the pulse of the industry. Okay. Well, that's a, a multi-tiered question. It, it is, and let me I apologize. See, let me see if Take I your can time, get all the, all mm-hmm. the parts of it. Okay.
2: You know, in terms of developing a concept um you you, you need three things you need ideas money and people the ideas are the easiest part of it you know I, I, i i lecture you know at universities and so forth um Uh, Chris, you know I go to France to the Institute Paul Bocuse and teach a class on how to create concepts
0: there. Right. Yes.
2: Um, And it's very easy to come up with a restaurant company, a concept rather. It's not hard at all. Um, You know, what I like to say as an operator is that part is easy: putting a great meal in front of every customer every day and making money at it that's hard that's what lettuce is good at you know we get a lot of credit for being creative uh but that's not the biggest strength so the ideas are easy you know if your financials look good you can get money um but trying to expand without a great team without great people it's very difficult um and for new restaurateurs coming up younger restaurateurs I think they need to realize that some concepts are good for expansion but not all um, you know and if they have a concept where they, they want to make a million dollars expanding the thing you know is that practical um, you know as far as the independent tour today I, I think the independent has several advantages over chains. Um, often, the independent type thinks they have fewer resources than might be available to a company like Lettuce, for example. We guys have all this talent. What well, we do, we develop that talent. You know, we we uh, prized it, we trained it, we mentored it, um, and yeah, it's worked well. But I think one of the biggest thing, what biggest advantages that independents have over change is passion. They are generally passionate about their idea. Mm-hmm. They are also generally um, more original in their thinking. And as an independent, they have the ability to adapt and change very quickly. They don't operate with committees. Committees slow you down. <laughs> you know, if Christopher Columbus had had a committee, working with a committee, he'd probably still be sitting at the dock. <laughs> um, you know, and another advantage that independents generally have, they know how to work. You know, their sleeves are rolled up and they're ready to work. Um, <laughs> I'm always cautious when... Um, And this just happened this week, as a matter of fact. I had a guy contact me who wanted my opinion on his proposed concept. Um, He thinks he has a franchisable idea and so forth. He has no restaurant experience at all. None. And he's
0: not scared by that, is he? (laughs) Well,
2: he's not scared by it. And he's what I refer to as a yeah, but client. When I say to him, well, you know, you don't have any restaurant experience, who's going to run this thing? Well, uh, you know, I'll find people.
0: Where? Of course you well, will. God I bless you. I you, but. And he just won't listen because he's
2: so enamored of the idea. He wants this to work so badly that he's willing to risk his life savings, he's you know, he's willing to just overlook all of these uh, very real obstacles that are staring him in the
0: face. Good points, and I, I hope he was heeding your warning. Um, you know what? I'd love to spend a couple minutes now on, because I think we were, we were going to touch on it earlier, but we stuck with people. And that is your, uh, your thoughts on the impact of technology uh, in, in the way you uh, concurrently operate your restaurants the use of technology and the way you see people marketing the brand, uh, how that's changed.
2: Well, um, in no particular order. Um, Lettuce has has never been really big or on the cutting edge of technology at the unit level. We're very sophisticated at the corporate level. Um, You know, in in terms of um, accounting and communications and things like that. But um, we're only beginning to experiment now with uh, uh, more technology-based things, kiosks, you know, handhelds for servers, those types of things. But they're not pervasive at lettuce by any means. Okay. Um, Yeah, I think they will become more and more prevalent moving forward. Um, But you can go too far. For example, last year, I remember there was a um, there seemed to be a huge interest and push with regards to robots serving in restaurants or delivering food. It just seemed goofy to me.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a long way off. Um, I'm a big science fiction fan. I, I've read science fiction since I was a kid so the idea of it is intriguing to me but the
0: practicality of it is lacking i hear you have Uh, your concepts done well with um third-party delivery online ordering and that kind of thing what are your thoughts on those well um all of our
2: restaurants are are uh, doing something along those lines you we don't have one company that we uh, that we deal with the managing partners are able to uh use whatever local companies they they feel best suit their needs um but I, I think what operators have to be aware of is um third-party delivery is certainly growing in popularity um people especially younger people love the um I love the idea of their favorite foods, you know, in the comfort of their home. Um, I don't have to dress up, I don't have to pay for parking, I don't have to get a babysitter, I mean, what? whatever it might be. Uh, I'll pay a little bit extra for that convenience and so forth. But, um, you know, <laughs> well, what the operator has to be aware of, I think, and, and quite concerned about is, when you use a third-party delivery service, you are taking your food and your reputation and putting it into someone else's hands. And that's always a risk. That's why Lettuce has never franchised any of its concepts. You know, the thought of our reputation being in the hands of a franchisee scares us.
0: Hmm. okay. Okay,
2: so... You know, if you order from DoorDash or Uber Eats or whoever it might be, <laughs> excuse me, um, if the meal arrives, arrives cold, who's the customer going to blame, DoorDash or you?
0: That's true. We we hear that constantly. There's the concern that that, that, that food is, a, is is a direct reflection of the operator. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, you know, then there's the option, of course, of doing the delivery yourself, uh, you know, that, and that's what every family-owned Chinese place does and a lot of pizzerias do. Um, you know, pizza and Chinese both travel exceptionally well. You know, but once you get away from those two cuisines, those two items, you know, it, it's a big drop-off, you know, in terms of quality by the time the food gets to your door. Um, so, if you're going to do delivery yourself, um, you got to keep your delivery area very, very tight, okay. and, and manage it with the same—excuse me—same diligence that you're managing um, the rest of your business.
0: Good principles: tight area, controllable, and look at it as the the same way you would look at an in uh in the dining room consumer
1: and you know so uh, i think so and I think so. and so many operators you know when we talk bring up third-party delivery of course they are talking about the you know the the cost of it the the a large piece of the action that the um providers are taking and um i'm really happy to hear you focus on the even bigger issue is putting your reputation on the line with a third party um, that could uh, drag down your reputation, particularly in this age when somebody can jump on Twitter and just rant about a bad experience they
2: had. Oh yeah, and you know, back when I started in the business, none of that existed, you know, but operators still were very aware of the fact that your best form of advertising was word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Now that word of mouth happens in 10 seconds exactly you know and it's reaching thousands of people um often from a reviewer or a commentator that isn't very qualified he just wants to rant exactly um and there's very little protection against that type of thing very little
1: john Um, as, as we as we wrap up these um excellent interviews and and uh, thank you very much. Your insights are just tremendous. Uh, our listeners like to know a little bit more about the, um, uh, the person we're talking to on a little more personal level. And we have these uh, five questions we like to ask. Uh, we call them the uh, Fave Five and get a little more insight into you as a, as a professional and a, and a person. And one of the first questions is, um, you know, what's your favorite go-to comfort food when you want something really special um what do you like uh
2: i love chinese food that's a good one not asian japanese thai chinese classic chinese
1: food it's a great comfort food believe me
2: uh or a great chicago hot
0: dog oh sure Uh, you you had
1: to throw that uh, one in there (laughs) Uh, a great burger that doesn't
0: have too big a bun okay now you you can't keep going going now okay because you're gonna get me hungry (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a favorite restaurant? Uh, it can be anywhere. Uh, I mean, obviously we're right here in the, the Windy City, you're covered up with great food, but I mean, anywhere in the world, what's your favorite restaurant?
2: You know, it, it changes for me. It really depends on what I have a taste for right then. Um, you know, and, and yeah, you know, I've eaten in great restaurants, you know, through the Caribbean and Rome, um, you know, London places in france certainly in lyon paris um but uh, it usually comes down to it's a very fluid thing for me i I couldn't name one place that's my favorite um because it does change for me okay
1: well you're a well-traveled guy um no surprise is there a favorite place a destination that really special to you that Uh, You're looking forward to going back again uh, sometime in the near future.
2: Yeah, it's in the Caribbean, Turks and
1: Caicos. Ah, okay. Oh, hello. um,
2: I've been there multiple times. Um, I'm headed back at the beginning of May Mm -hmm. uh, for a vacation. Um, And I don't like to do much on vacation. I like the biggest decision of the day to be where we have dinner.
0: Exactly. Nice.
2: And my girlfriend likes to do that research. I I don't care where we're going. I don't care what it costs. You know, just pick some place that has great food. And, you know, and we've certainly developed a lot of favorites there on the islands um, that we enjoy.
0: Our next question um, is more about um, significant impact on yourself. Is there, say, a favorite person, influencer, early on mentor, someone comes to mind that has had a lot to do with you and your development?
2: Well, early on, it it would be my dad. Um, You know, and ironically, as a kid, he taught me so many lessons that I didn't get as a kid. That you know, they didn't strike me until I was much older. That's what he was talking about. That's what he meant back then. Uh, More recently, Rich Melman, of course. but I, I look up to anyone who strives for excellence in their field, um, anyone, who, anyone who prides himself on a job well done, as opposed to, nah, that's good enough.
1: And finally, um, John, is there a favorite book or even a passage from a book or even a poem or even some saying that um, is meaningful to you and that um, maybe you even live by?
2: Well, one of my favorite philosophies comes from a line from The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's when the wizard is exposed, when little dog Toto pulls the curtain back and the wizard is bellowing he says, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And it, it sort of to- tells me not to put too much um, faith and awe in authority and authority figures. They're not always right. But, you know, as far as having a, um, a philosophy, do of you guys know who Roger Bannister was?
1: Yes. yes. Four Minute Mile?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was the first man to run the four minute mile. And I researched this back. Uh, Back in the early 50s, it was believed that it was a physical impossibility for a human being to run that fast. I mean, there were articles in the medical journals and texts, you know, using formulas, wind resistance, body mass, muscle tone, all this stuff that proved a human could not run that fast. And in 1954, Roger Bannister runs a four-minute mile in three minutes, 59.4 seconds. Well, within the, two months, somebody broke
0: his record. Yeah, I was just trying to think of the ones that came right after, what Ryan, and then who was the guy in the uh, Oregon, Pr- um, Proudhon, no. Uh, I don't know
2: the others, Proudhon? but within a year, anyway. a dozen more people, they didn't break <coughs> the record, but they broke the four-minute mark.
0: They just needed his example.
2: So, you know, what strikes me is, what changed? Well, what was different? And that led to me putting up a little sign in my office It says, you think you can, you think you can't. Either way, you're right. Perfect. So I I like to tell clients, students, whatever, you know, the more you believe that you can get things done, the more likely you are to be able to get them done. If you think it's too hard to do, then don't do it. Go back to
1: what you were doing before. A great deal of wisdom there, John. Hey, Thank you so much for, you know, for me, guys. sharing the time and, and the wisdom with our listeners and um, all your experience. We could talk for another hour and a half and listen to you. But uh, this has been great. And um, uh, thank you for being on The Corner Booth.
0: We'd love to have Thanks you back sometime. John, you go ha- make it a good day. Okay, you too. Thank you, sir. much bye Bye now. And special thanks to our friends at Lone Star Liquor Licensing Company for sponsoring today's program. Don't forget, listeners, whether your needs are retail, catering, wholesale, or manufacturing, whether you're opening or renewing, contact Lone Star Liquor Licensing at LoneStarLiquorLicense.com. Hey, thanks for joining us today on the Corner Booth. Until next time, it's Chris Triple A and Barry Schuster saying thanks so much. Hope to see you again soon right here in the corner booth. Till then, go make it a good shift.